Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast for book three, chapter eight. To what extent is Morton's attitude justified? And what is the secret gang he has joined? Maybe I'm just a bit out of the loop, but I wasn't really sure what was being referred to with that whole ribbon that he mustn't, she mustn't tell Morton's father about, or, or whatever the line was. Swim said the mum she says, Morton is a German nationalist, and he most likely has joined a group of like-minded fellows. Morton is an advocate of creating a nation-state, then continuing with the German, rather than continuing with the German Confederation, I think. Per Wikipedia, the earliest origins of German nationalism began with the birth of the Romantic nationalism during the Napoleonic Wars, with pan-Germanism started to rise. Advocacy of a German nation-state began to become an important political force in response to the invasion of Germany, German territories by France under Napoleon. After the defeat of France in the Napoleonic Wars at the Congress of Vienna, German nationalists tried but failed to establish Germany as a nation-state. Instead, the German Confederation was created. That was a loose collection of independent German states that lacked strong federal institutions. Terrific says, I think it's fair to say that Morton is tired of the class system and how it affects his parents and himself and all interpersonal connections and behaviours. We have a little of this still in pockets of society, but for the most part, this is a thing of the past. But just imagine how oppressive and unfair it must seem to a bright kid like Morton. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, it's frustrating when someone is born into a wealthy family and kind of, you know, gets life on a silver platter born what do they say with a silver spoon in their mouth that's frustrating but then at least that is like their parents earned that right to give the child the privilege or at least somewhere down the line that right was earned via you know good business decisions or luck or whatever it was but um that's annoying even when it's somewhat justified but when it's completely unjustified other than sort of you know, they're born into a family which is in this class and therefore they're in this class and it's got nothing to do with anything, you know, like business decisions or money or anything like that. It's literally just a title that they get at birth. And it can, you can see why that division would just seem arbitrary and, and dumb and unfair. Star 415 says, In which year are we in this story? It looks like we're heading towards the 1848 revolutions that spread across Europe. By 1849, they mostly failed, similar to the Arab Spring, and the conservative side was able to come out stronger by using the divisions of the revolutionaries. I hope we get more of a historical background in the plot, since so far not much of it. Swim says, we are around 1845 or 80, uh, 1846, so a couple years leading into that revolution, of which I know absolutely nothing. Techrific says, quick thoughts. Tony is now living a double life of sorts, the festive persona with her rich friends and the more serious, mature one with Morton. Mortis sits on the stones, i.e. is bored and lonely, but not really. I think it kind of was more like, or a bit of a, a metaphor for sitting on the outskirts, you know, looking from the outside in or feeling ostracized from the rest of the society. Um, especially not when Tony joins him there and they sit together and they have a real moment together. Sitting on the stones is a great but pom- complicated metaphor. Morton is a serious-minded person, perhaps an idealist, but also somebody that wants to help people in a more concrete way. He is after all. He is after all studying medicine. 
is an interesting contrast for Tony in comparison to other male figures in her life, especially her father, her brothers and Grundlich. I think Tony and Morton have, for me, at least become, very quickly, they've become the two most interesting characters in the book. I wonder if everyone else would agree with that. And let's read chapter 9. It goes like this. It is wonderful how one doesn't get bored here at the seashore, Morton. Imagine lying anywhere else for hours at a time, flat on your back, doing nothing, not even thinking. Yes, but I must confess that I use, used to be bored sometimes, only not in the last few weeks. Autumn was at hand. The first strong wind had risen. Thin, tattered grey clouds raced across the sky. The dreary, tossing sea was covered far and wide from foam. Great, powerful waves rolled silently in, rest, relentless, awesome towered majestically in a metallic green, dark green curve, then crashed thundering on the sand. The season was quiet at an end. On the part of the beach, usually occupied by the throng of bathers, the pavilions were already partly dismantled and it lay as quiet as the grave, with only a very few basket chairs, but Tony and Morton spent the afternoon in a distant spot at the edge of the yellow loam where the waves hurled their spray as far up as Seagull Rock. Morton had made her a solid sand fortress, and she leaned against it with her back, her feet in their strap shoes, and white stockings crossed in front of her. Morton lay, turned towards her with his chin in his hands. Now and then a seagull flew past them, shrieking. They looked at the green wall of wave, streaked with seaweed that came threateningly on and on, then broke against the opposing boulders, with the eternal, confused tumult that deafens and silences and destroys all sense of time. Finally, Morton made a movement as though rousing himself from deep thought and said, Well, you will soon be leaving us for Ali and Tony. Oh, no, why? Tony said absently. Well, it is the 10th of September. My holidays are nearly at an end anyhow. How much longer can it last? Shall you be glad to get back to the society of your own kind? Tell me, I suppose the gentlemen you dance with are very agreeable... No, no, that was not what I meant to say. Now you must answer me, he said with a sudden resolution, shifting his chin in his hands and looking at her. Here is the question I have been waiting so long to ask. Now, who is her Grunlich? Tony sat up, looking at him quickly, her eyes shifting back and forth like those of a person recollecting himself on a coming out of a dream. After coming out of a dream. She was feeling, again, the sense of increased personal importance first experience when her Grunlich proposed for her hand. Oh, is that what you want to know, Morton? She said, weightily. Well, I will tell you, it was really very painful for me to have Thomas mention his name like that at the first afternoon, but since you have already heard of him, well, her Grunlich, Benedict's Grunlich, excuse me, is a business friend of my father, a well-to-do Hamburg merchant, who has asked for my hand. No, no, she replied quickly to a movement of Morton. I have refused him. I have never been able to make up my mind to yield him my consent for life. And why not, if I may ask, said Morton awkwardly. Why? Oh, good heavens, because I couldn't endure him, she cried out in a passion. You ought to have seen him, how he looked and how he acted. Among other things, he had yellow whiskers, dreadfully unnatural. I'm sure he curled them and put on a gold powder, like the stuff we use for the Christmas nuts, and he was underhanded. He fawned on my father and mother and chimed in with them in the most shameful way. Morton interrupted her. But what does this mean? That trims it up uncommonly. Tony broke into a nervous giggle. Well, he talked like that, Morton. He wouldn't say that looks very well, or it goes very well with the room. He was frightfully silly, I tell you, and very persistent. He simply wouldn't be put off. 
although I never gave him anything but sarcasm. Once he had, once he made such a scene, he nearly wept. Imagine a man weeping. He must have worshipped you, Morton said softly. Well, what affair was that of mine? She cried out, astonished, turning around on her sand heap. You are cruel, Fraulein Tony. Are you always cruel? Tell me. You didn't like this, Herr Grunlich, but is there anyone to whom you have been more gracious? Sometimes I think, has she a cold heart? Let me tell you something, a man is not idiotic simply because he weeps when you won't look at him. I swear it, I am not sure, not at all, that I wouldn't do the same thing. You see, you are such a dainty, spoiled thing. Do you always make fun of people that lie at your feet? Have you really a cold heart? After the first giggle, Tony's lip began to quiver. She turned on him a pair of great, distressed eyes, which slowly filled with tears as she softly said, No, Morton, you should not think that of me. You must not think that of me. I don't. Indeed, I don't, he cried with a laugh of mingled emotion and hardly suppressed exultation. He turned fully about so that he lay supporting himself on his elbows, took her hands in both his and looked straight into hers with his kind, steel-blue eyes with which were excited and dreamy and exalted all at once. Then you, you won't mock at me if I tell you. I know, Morton, she answered gently, looking away from him at the fine white sand sifting through the fingers of her free hand. You know, and you, oh, Fraulein Tony. Yes, Morton, I care a great deal for you, more than for anyone else I know. He started up, making awkward gestures with his arms like a man bewildered. Then he got to his feet only to throw himself down again by her side and cry in a voice that stammered, wavered, died away and rose again out of sheer joy. Thank you, thank you, I'm so happy, more than I ever was in all my life. And he fell to kissing her hands. After a moment he said more quietly, You will be going back to town soon, Tony, and my holidays will be over in two weeks. Then I must return to Gottingen. But will you promise me that you will never forget this afternoon here on the beach till I come back again with my degree and can ask your father however hard that's going to be and you won't listen to any of her Grundlich meantime? Oh, it won't be so long. I will work like a, like anything. It will be so easy. Yes, Morton, she said dreamily, looking at his eyes, his mouth, his hands, holding hers. He drew her hand close to his breast and asked very softly and imploringly, And won't you, may I, seal the promise... She did not answer him, she did not look at him, but moved nearer to him on the sand heap, and Morton kissed her slowly and solemnly on the mouth. Then they stared in different directions across the sand, and both felt furiously embarrassed. Alright, wow, there's a cute chapter for you, a little bit of a, a meat cute, you could say. Morton and Tony, very cute. Alright, have your say about it over on the subreddit. And I'll see you tomorrow.